0: Welcome back to the Smarter Marketer podcast brought to you by Rocket Agency. I'm your host, James Lawrence. Welcome back to the Smarter Marketer podcast. I'm here today with Stuart Jaffray. Stuart, welcome to the pod.
1: James thanks for having me I'm excited to be here
0: I'm excited about this one as well so Stuart is managing director at green hat uh, founded in 2001 Green hat is a highly regarded Australian B2B marketing agency working in areas like B2B strategy content ABM automation digital and more Green hat works with clients such as Nestle nextDC superloop Mimecast and corn Ferry Stuart welcome to the pod really keen to to dig deep into B2B marketing in in 2023. I think you've got a really interesting career journey and I think the different roles and the places you've worked since since you started in your career kind of shape what you're doing today and are very relevant to the types of work that you're doing at Green Hat with the team. So I think it'd be awesome just to start with that, like just to talk about your career and the roles and the influences and and, uh, and, and where you've been.
1: Yeah, sure. That's a nice easy one to kick us off, James. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Um, So look, the short answer to that is DM agency DM agency client media agency B2B agency but there's obviously we're done, we're done. podcast well, over <laughs> I know, exactly right so there's a mix in there of creative agencies client media and then and then into B2B so I I kick started my career in a DM agency as it was back then we were running databases fax back campaigns can you believe they were a thing i still wake up some nights thinking i wonder if there are still some responses down the back of one of the machines that we never actually well, found. we
0: we moved we used to have a fax machine back in our old business and then someone said there's this service which is like a pdf set and then emails you the copy of the fax and it was frighteningly recently that we actually dis- disabled that service <laughs> it was going to a, um, a mailbox that we didn't didn't attend anymore but we'll still i don't know that it's like the soldiers that were found in 1947 still you're still fighting in the second That's world exactly war right.
1: <laughs> i reckon there's still some subscriptions and things for clients that are, that are just sitting there somewhere that, uh, that we never knew existed so look the dm agency side, so i started in london and then i moved to sydney again into a dm agency i mean they're now called crm agencies and and other things as well but it was for me when, when i started it was direct marketing i had studied accounting and i had studied marketing at university and for me it sort of combined the two things. There was an accountability, if you like, yeah. and a countability about what we were doing from a marketing perspective that I really enjoyed. So it enabled me to to stimulate that part of my brain. And I really enjoyed the creative side as well. So if I look back now. What that had started to demonstrate to me was sort of how you could start to, I guess, as a marketer, bridge that gap between creativity and business strategy. And I think that's sort of fundamentally a lot of what we're tasked to do. So that was that was the start of the journey. I reached a stage within, so Simon Richards Group was the agency I worked for in Australia, in both um, Sydney and then, and then in Melbourne. And um, I'd reached a stage there where I had this just, Hang to go client side, if you like grass was greener over there, uh, yeah. as I saw it at the time, and i had been working on a couple of auto accounts, I was actually approached by BMW um, to go over there and head up CRM for them. And a this sort of desire to go and see what it was really like on client side, because I hadn't done it before. And B, obviously, the call of BMW, which uh, I mean, just just a, a wonderful brand, and it was a a privilege to work on the BMW brand for for what was what ended up being nearly ten years for oh, me. Wow. It was just too big an opportunity to sort of turn down. So. I went over there initially as the CRM manager. Again, look, I'm dating myself already in this call. Right? I've talked about faxbacks already. We were doing a lot of direct mail. You um, did start when you were five, though. So Yeah, that's it exactly <laughs> right. Thank you, James. So kind. <laughs> um, so a lot of direct mail. But the part that I started to really become fascinated about there was the insight and the intelligence that was sitting within the CRM. At the time, it was in an Oracle database. And essentially how untapped that resource was but also for me the other part within an auto was that how much of what we were doing at the time was outbound sort of post-purchase communications rather than actually using the power of what we had there to identify people that were likely to be in market because we had finance data in there and insurance data and all of these other things yeah. you got service data in there and how we could actually start to bring this together to, to drive sales and repeat sales from from, from within the audience so we went aggressively down that journey. Over my my sort of tenure there at BMW, I then took digital. So digital at the time I joined was was separate. That came into my team. And then over time, I took in sort of brand and product and ultimately sort of became the the, the CMO of BMW, which was a job that I had there for just over three years, and and that was look. It was a wonderful experience, as I said. BMW is an amazing brand. The product's fantastic. The opportunity to be able to sort of steer that, if you like, within within the Australian market was 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 just phenomenal mm. for me. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I look back at that at that period really fondly. I'm still a convert. I still love the product. Right, I'm fairly one-eyed about that from an all-time perspective as well. But again, I'd, I'd reached a stage then at BMW where you've had that role for three years what what's going to happen next and one of the the areas for me at bmw where i had significant influence was in media you are taking creative from global we repurposes it, it yeah. repurposing as we saw the sort of fit in in the australia market but, but you had complete autonomy really around the sort of media side and um And I developed a sort of keen interest uh, around that and the opportunity existed there for me to go over to Starcom to become managing director for them in the Melbourne market. I'd plateaued at BMW. I needed to do something else. It was go and do something else at BMW. I didn't want to take a sales role or something like that BMW, go overseas with them. I've got a family here. And so the opportunity came up for for, for Starcom and and, and I I took it. And uh, as with moving from, simon richards group as it was into into bmw the move from bmw to starcom was something that the learning curve again was immense because you've sat from the outside watching Mm -hmm. the media and 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 influencing the, the the outcomes with with the media agency but it's a very different beast once you're inside it yeah culturally it was i'd worked in agencies before obviously but culturally coming out of a Suit and tie, fairly structured and organised business, so as as BMW was into into a media agency. The, the the cultural change was something that took me quite a while, I think, uh, to be fair, to adjust back into. And again, over a three year period, there the learnings for me were immense, and I think that part of that working within the publicist group at the time as well the investment that was going on into things like Epsilon and the, the tech stacks there, I was fascinated by, and I, and I really enjoyed those sides of, of, of what we were able to do there to solve client problems in, in, in really interesting and fascinating ways beyond spots and dots and media, right? So that was a really... Uh, what again, were some of really... the, mis-
0: like I guess, misconceptions you had, I guess, having been client-side for so long? I imagine that you're buying media on behalf of BMW using an agency like the one you ended up going yeah. to. Like, What were some of those learnings, I guess, that... You kind of thought, well, this is very different being on the other side of the fence now.
1: I think that clients and sitting on the client side, you see the output from the agency, which is at the end of the day, it's 20 slides of PowerPoint, probably 10 of them are of value. And there's a media schedule at the back. Right? that's left, I'm, done, I'm distilling it down to a really simplistic <laughs> uh, sort of version of what you get out. There's a rigor that exists. You don't see you scratch the you scratch the sides of that as, as 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 a client, and so the rigor that exists within the media agency to get to the recommendation, I think, is something that is very easy sitting on the client side to sort of dismiss at times, and 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 the discipline that goes behind that to get there as well, which was which was something that I think that was quite eye opening to me. I had a what I thought was a good understanding of how they got there, but there's a lot more to it. I yeah. think. The other thing as well, which I, I was staggered by, was the, um, you know, we have this notion of programmatic and, uh, I mean, shit, it's not AI, right? It's um, it's Programmatic is heavily influenced by a human being. The amount of work that pours in from the programmatic teams to get to the outcome and, and, and the amount of human intervention that's actually required there, I was staggered by that. Yeah. I sat with some of the team. Over a period of days, actually, just, and I actually just sat next to them to see what they were doing. And I would sit there and go, my goodness me, mm. there were areas like that, that I had a lot more respect, I think, for what they were doing than, than than necessarily what I'd had before. One more thing very, very quickly as well. I think the other thing there, coming out of BMW, right, you've been there for 10 years. I knew a lot about auto.
0: Mm. I think
1: coming back into an agency, my exposure across other categories again, there fmcg as an example banking finance etc and retail one of the things i realized very quickly was that at bmw it had been very easy to become fixated on what the other autos were doing Mm. and not necessarily taking enough inspiration from outside of category there are things the deployment of growth theory from the fmcg's that I look back at now and say, I wish I'd had some more of that when I was at BMW mm. in, my, in my kit bag. You rely on the agencies to be to be provoking that around you. But as a senior marketer at the time, I wish I'd had more of that because I could have driven more of that agenda myself. So that's the other big thing that I got out of coming back into an agency environment mm. was just that the application of marketing science in different ways across different categories and sort of being able to just sort of suck all of that up and, and work out where to deploy that in the right way across different categories and different clients. So then I think I'd reached a stage at Darcom where I wasn't convinced that media for me personally, that that was what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Hmm. I had enjoyed it, but I had reached a stage there to say, I'm not convinced this is me in my future. Right. So The opportunity, again, it's an independent agency, so it's very different to the construct that I had and the structure I had around me within the publicist group. But the thing that really appealed to me there was it's a full service agency. So I look at that and say, okay. well, you look back at where my career has come so far. Here's the opportunity to take all of that and deploy that clients from a strategic perspective, from a creative perspective, from a media perspective, from a digital perspective, from a CRM, and and, and bring all of that to bear for our clients. And in a space that that I was really fascinated about around B2B, I had, again, I'd scratched the edges of B2B at various stages of my career. BMW would have been an example of that clients that we had at Starcom were primarily B2C but they had a B2B component to what they were doing as well. So I w- I was really interested in that and at the moment um my my focus is is absolutely in the I think I made the right decision right? B2B. I'm, I'm I'm fascinated by the space. There's an awful lot of of noise and growth around so B2B marketing at yeah. the moment. The application of marketing science into this space we've got there is more of that available to b2b marketers than there ever has been before via Ehrenberg Bass and Ben Fields work etc which 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 I'm really enjoying so no, it's been a, it's been a great decision and it is there's a complexity to what we do in this space which which I'm I, I'm fascinated about
0: as mm. well it is a very interesting space i know you've got some strong feelings about the next question just the same isn't it as b2c <laughs> yeah. oh exactly absolutely
1: absolutely the same <laughs> let's talk about
0: it let's talk about the difference and i guess green hat's yeah. perspective on just why b2b is so different to okay. um, to b2c marketing and i mean look
1: at the heart of this and i hear people talk to this a lot as well we're still dealing with individuals right yes, yes we are totally. and human beings regardless of whether you're making decisions for yourself or for your business or for your family, there's a rational and emotional part, then the emotional part often often outweighs it. I mean, you see that time and time again. So there are similarities there, right? There's no question about that because we're still ultimately looking to influence the behavior of human beings. So where it is different, though, okay, first of all, you're dealing with a buying group. You're not dealing with an individual. Now, if I go back to, to, to my time at BMW, that was a complex consumer purchase yep. because you're typically dealing with two people. Most car purchases are a sort of family purchase. So yep. There are two people and maybe some smaller influences, your children in the background as a well. USB,
0: USB charger for their iPad. <laughs> that's it, which exactly was that? Right. I took my kids to a, a showroom and that was the driver and I was like, because there were USB <laughs> chargers in the back seat. <laughs> How loud is the <laughs> this stereo? Is not, this is game. not dictating the decision, <laughs> kids. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> and then the other complexity within an auto is there's typically two cars because you're trading one and getting into another. So, so that's but that's about as yeah, complicated it's a complex as a consumer C, purchase beta. goes yeah. right in b2b you're dealing with a buying group our study so we run a green hat uh what we call the b2b outlook report it's a study that we've run for 13 years now on an annual basis off of the back of that i can tell you that the average size of a buying group that the participants of that study are, are dealing with is eight people so between five and eight actually is your, yeah. is your average but, but we have some clients where we know there are 30 people involved mm. in that buying group. What we have to do then, the complexity there from an agency perspective and for our clients is to stitch together the signals, the buying signals from the individuals within that buying group and influence them over time. And when I say over time, some of the decision-making processes here are up to three years, right? So you need an idea and you need a communication strategy that can stitch together across 30 people within an organisation over a three-year period to help to influence their decision-making. The other part there is the deal size. I mean, you you can be dealing with a purchase where ultimately someone's going to sign off on a tech purchase that is multi-million dollars over multi-years. That's fairly significant. If I was to simplify this completely, I could walk into... Coles now and make a spontaneous purchase on a product and bring it home and the kids go, I don't like that. And I'll go, well, that's a bit of a shame. It cost me $3. I'm going to tip it down the sink. If I make a decision like that in the B2B world that was the wrong decision mm-hmm. for the business, I could strangle the business with the implementation of a piece of tech that doesn't actually deliver for us. Yeah. I can lose my job. There yeah. are some, radical, some, some significant differences there in terms of the implications of the of the decision that we're making. Underneath all of that, though, I'll come back to where where I was earlier on, there's still a core emotional component to that. So the decision-making, where we often go, though, given all of those factors in B2B, is highly rational, highly product-led communication. I think that's where the mistake comes. The emotional side of influencing behaviour and consumers and and the buying group is as important within B2B as it is within B2C. And
0: do you feel that's changing? Like, Do you feel that B2B marketing... I couldn't agree with you more in terms of the distinctions, the core distinctions between, you know, your classic B2C, your classic yeah. B2B. But do you feel that the, the strategies, communication, branding, messaging, like is that changing in B2B? Like what are you seeing? Like over, over a longer period, like say over the last five years, are more marketing environments getting that right? and yeah tapping Yes, into
1: those I think so. My view on that, I said there's more marketing science available now in the B2B space than there ever has been, right? So I think that on that basis, we're we're operating somewhat in a sort of golden age there. So an important point there, if, if you look at some of the theory that exists now, if you look at Ehrenberg Bass, they'll tell you that 95% of your audience are out of market, only 5% are in market at any time. And the way that that then gets sort of framed out is to say that if you're not focusing on the 95%, you're ignoring your future cash flows. And I think For too long, B2B marketers focused very much on the 5% and ignored the 95%. There is now a realization that that's a mistake because you're playing the sort of law of diminishing returns. I understand why it happens, though, because the other part that is different within B2B is that B2B organizations, B2B businesses are typically very, very sales-led and sales-dominated, which drives this focus back down to the 5%. Stronger B2B marketers tackle that head on. Your sales leaders and particularly your CFO as well and your CEO should understand that. All of my investment is going there and I'm ignoring the 95%. What does this look like for the business in three, four, five years time, right? So that's an important sort of piece for us there. Whether you agree with the the absolute numbers on this or not, they'll say what 45% of your budget should be then going into brand and 55% in activation. That's different to consumer but it's respectful. reflective of the fact that the time to convert a deal is so much longer. So you actually need to put more into the activation piece because it just takes it takes longer to do yeah. it. I would say over the last 12 months, we're having more conversations with B2B marketers that know and understand that and are having the right conversations internally and are therefore then empowered to have those discussions proactively with us rather than the agency sort of push that agenda back into them.
0: I was going to say exactly the same thing. Because like, in the 95-5 rule, they're all rules of thumb, right? And obviously, it mm-hmm. depends on what the product is and what the market looks like. And I think no exaggeration that it's probably the 99-1 to 1 rule in certain areas, right? Correct. Like it's, it's just no extreme. And we see and hear the same thing from our clients. And I, and I do believe that most Experienced marketers that we're dealing with, they kind of know this stuff now. And I think yeah. to your point, the studies are better, the data's better, the reports, the research to actually back up the story that only 5% of our market is actually looking for a product or service like us right now. The long and the short of it type stuff, the idea that, you know, whether it's 50% brand building activities and 50% demand gen or whether it's 60, 40, you can argue the toss depending. Oh, absolutely um, right. Most of our clients, when we're dealing with marketers, I think understand that. I think we're Sometimes they struggle is getting buy-in from different stakeholders in their organizations and yeah, whether it is finance or whether it is C-suite or whether it is, and you're right, like I think a lot of this stuff is sales-led, right? So in this complex Mm -hmm. B2B space, sales-led organizations, but therefore there's that kind of often the imbalance internally and the marketers might not necessarily kind of get the equal ear of, say, the CEO or the MD. Yeah, absolutely right. And, and we still see it as well. Again, I, I refer back to the B2B Outlook report earlier on. So when
1: we ran that study last year, we could see that over 25% of the respondents were still spending less than a quarter of their budget on brand, right? So there's still, yeah. whilst I say that clearly the conversation, the discourse is changing, We've still got a lot of work to do there. I think the other thing that drives that as well is that, particularly when you think about this as a tech sector, there's a lot of businesses that have scaled up very, very quickly within this space that have done so without really spending an awful lot of money on marketing, right? There was a product need that was identified there by the founder. They've built, they've deployed it. They've started to build and scale the business. And then they reach a certain stage, if you like, where we're not growing anymore. I need to fill the pipe. I need more leads. Mm. And that's where their their journey in marketing goes from. I need pamphlets for an ex- exhibition mm. to I need some demand gen. But the conversation there with those types of businesses needs to flip very quickly from, okay, we can help to support that. But unless you're doing this other piece mm. as well, which you've never had to do before, by the way, yeah. as well, you're going to have an issue in the longer term.
0: And we've picked up a lot of businesses at that exact juncture. And it's, because we're in the you know SEO, Google Ads, paid social space, mm. a lot of LinkedIn activity, and it's the classic conversation, which is marketer reaches out, and you know we've done pretty well to date. Trade shows, conferences, sales team going out, whatever mm. it might be, got some good news. We've just got all this budget which we want to run a campaign to generate some leads for for the sales yeah. team, and it's really hard to then re-educate and kind of get yeah, but you're selling complex ERP software that has a three to five year. Kind of contract generally there's only this many number of businesses in the market they're not punching you know looking for that that particular search term in google every month the volumes just yeah. aren't there you need to get out there and educate that market and meet them at, at their kind of terms but it's definitely a challenge like what, what do you see working like your best clients that are generally kicking goals smashing it yeah. What what kind of approach are they taking in 2023 I, I think
1: one of the, it's, there's a couple of things here for for me in the B2B space. The, the first is that we're consistently now challenging this sort of notion of, of leads and we call it an MQL, so a, a marketing quali- qualified lead. The data will tell us, and, and it doesn't matter who you are and how big your brand is, only around 3% of the people coming to your website are going to fill out a form. And as marketers, all too often we're obsessed with that, right? I just need leads, 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 leads. I need yeah. more MQLs, more MQLs. But the reality is that the bulk of the people coming to your website don't want to fill out a form. Put my hand up now. I don't want to. Hmm. I don't want to receive fifty-six emails from you over the over the course of the next
0: three months. Well, Stuart, months because in preparing I, I for this part, I, I went onto your website to download the, the report, and I was <laughs> I was going to download it, and then I was asking for my mobile number, and I was like, oh, I'm just not going to. it. I'm not going to do
1: it. I know. <laughs> well, we're, and it's funny. Right? Oh, that's a different discussion. But, um,
0: <laughs> I'm not as, really in your target um, market though either.
1: As well, and, and as with most agencies as well, we spend so much time on the client work that sometimes <laughs> we need to reflect it back into our own site. It's on the agenda, by the way, so go back and have a look in six months' time. Um, where, where I was going to go on that was, so if we accept the fact that only 3% are going to fill out the form, what are we doing about the 97%? Now, the great thing in the B2B space is that there is intent data available to us. We can identify, not on an individual level, but we can certainly identify an account level. Who's coming to your site? So, the smarter and the more progressive marketers are recognizing okay, those people have gone to my site for a reason. Do I care if they filled out a form or not? Hmm. What I should care about as a marketer is that I can identify the account that is going there, Hmm. and I can now look to go back and influence the buying party within that account on the basis that that intent if you like, is the new inbound for us. So we used to be fixated on inbound inquiry and getting people to put up their hands and give us their details. Let's step back from that and accept the fact that, that the people don't want to do that anymore. What I can do, though, is identify the intent that is out there in market. Anonymous, as I said, but not anonymous at an account level. And then it's our job to be able to stitch that back together to build the programs out and to build out the targeting, et cetera, to reach the individuals from within the buying group in that account and ensure that the sales team have an understanding of this as well, particularly in those sort of higher value more complex yeah. arenas, so that they can get on the front foot as well. They know that Business X has been showing in 10, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 signals that they're interested in in, in our business. Because they keep coming back to the website, I need to reach out and I need to get on the front foot with them. And that's where I think the sort of real smarts come from now within the B2B space of recognising that. I don't know if they
0: actually were at the forefront of that, but they definitely kind of got the reputation for it, which was Atlassian who kind of took that more B2C approach to content to the B2B world. We mix it up, right? Like, we still have, like, even on the Rocket website, a lot of content will still be gated. Some won't, the clients. It's still a judgment call based on the value of that data versus the content. And I don't think there's all, I don't think you're going to lean towards all or nothing. I think it is just about the value you're giving. And I think the report you're giving away on your website, if you can get data for that. You can always test it as well, right, as to what?
1: Absolutely you can. And, uh, I mean, there's there's two things as well there that that sort of drive some of the thinking around ungating for us now. One is to say that if I've got an organisation that is researching the types of product that we sell, wouldn't I prefer that it's us that's educating them? And by providing the, the, the asset to them ungated, they're more likely to consume it from me. So that's a positive. I think the other is, uh, again, this sort of fixation around an MQL. We know if we accept the fact that there is a buying party attached, so it's not mm. just one individual, my MQL is just one person, right? It's it's, it's one individual from within the organization. So I, I need to an extent remove my sort of fixation on that. We were talking to a CMO last week who was very clear on this. She said that she's a steward, unless I have, and she talks about it as multi-threading, unless I have the sales team have meetings with three individuals within an organization. We don't count it as an opportunity mm. because when it's only one, I'm not engaging with a buying group or a buying party. Once we have had three meetings with separate individuals within that business or three collectively together, I know that this is a real opportunity now and, mm. um, and we've got work to do to convert it. So,
0: interesting, interesting point. Nice, nice term too. And I think, you know, we we're talking before we jumped onto the part of you know, about a physical event that you're at, right? And it is mm-hmm. same as a lot of the the, um, the work that we do as a business. Sometimes you you run a webinar or you put a pot out like this and someone reaches out and says, hey, the time's right, loved what you're talking about. And then sometimes it's many years where it's I've seen you guys around and our contract's up with our agency and, you know, we're in the B2B space ourselves mm-hmm. and it's just the way the world works. And if you are, if you do take that 95-5 rule seriously, there'll be people out there looking at your product considering it, they might be under contract for another 18 months with, you know, with your competitor, right, so. Yeah, something... exactly,
1: and it's, it's interesting then in terms of the measurement that you put around some of these, so for example, I mean, you use the example of webinars and we've had conversations in the past with, with people who've said, I, I need more leads, we're gonna run a webinar. And I'm, I'm not sure that that's the right approach here because the webinar, if you get this right from an educational perspective as well, is not necessarily gonna drive a lead result for you tomorrow. It is going to do something longer term for mm. you from a brand perspective, and so getting those those measurement pieces right. I think one of the mistakes that we see is the activity, any outcome mm. being misaligned. And our job as an agency, obviously, is to have the right discussions there to say, okay, if if that's the activity in the way that you're measuring it is wrong, or if that's the outcome that you're looking for, mm. then the activity is not necessarily going to deliver that. So we need to sort of pivot around that.
0: That kind of comes back to your point before around being ten years in BMW and then jumping across back into agency landing having this exposure to all these different categories right and it's the same i think probably for both of us at rocket and greenheart we kind of have that perspective right where mm-hmm. if you are dealing with a marketing team that's having that issue with sales or is trying to kind of see webinars as a way of generating mqls that in 3 months time are going to lead to sqls kind of going well that's not really it's not really how it's working for other 20 yeah. clients or 10 clients that have, that have done the same thing over the last couple of years in terms of that data piece to know that a certain company is interested in content. You, you guys are just doing that through CRM. Is that kind of right? Or?
1: There are a number of ways you can get at this. For, for clients, for example, that have uh, the Sixth Sense platform, we're using the intent data that they have access to. We work very closely with organizations, with businesses like Bombora as well, who can provide that intent data through to us. Yeah, right. Where it becomes really powerful is when I can start to stitch together first-party intent, so what's happening on your site, and then the third party intent as well. So in fact, I'll do it the other way around. So start with the third party intent so I can see that a business is showing intent for a particular product or a particular category, but they're not coming to your site yet.
0: Yeah.
1: Once I can then combine those two things together and say, now I can see that the intent is happening on your site as well. Things are escalating there, right? They're, yeah. they're, 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 they're reaching a different stage of research. For some of our clients now, where we're actually starting to sort of push and provoke this out to is to say, okay what are the intent signals that happen before the intent signal? So um, we call it pre-intent. For example, we can see that a business is starting to employ certain types of individuals within the organization. It's suggestive that they're going on a particular journey from a tech perspective that is going to ultimately lead to them needing Mm. the type of product you sell. So from a pre-intent perspective, the job there is to be serving them up brand and educational messages so that when they actually get to that decision now okay we're ready to move forward the organization is now ready for this from a purchase perspective your brand or your business is the first they're actually going to talk to you're the one that they're familiar with so I think that there's still a lot of growth for us from from deploying that type of data with the tech enablement that we now have to really provide meaningful dialogue between businesses so the seller and the and, and yeah. the potential buyer i like to look at that to say that a lot of your activity is waiter based so you're sort of waiting to see that they're interested in and sort of serving yeah. up as you would in a restaurant where we would like to see this is more of a sort of butler analogy where i've actually realized what it is that you're looking for before you actually realized it yeah therefore i can serve this communications up to you in advance and i think that's cool i think that's exciting how does that
0: because the next area i wanted to talk about was account-based marketing abm like how does that does that is that that or would that be a little bit different mm-hmm. once you're actually more proactive going out to an organization yeah. where you think there's a fit? Um, look, yes. All, everything that we've talked about so far
1: cascades down into account-based marketing. Account-based marketing, there there are three levels of it, which I'll get to in a minute. But I mean, essentially when you, when you distill it down in terms of what account-based marketing is about, it is about focusing or a light focus or alignment of the business on a specific number of accounts or businesses that sit within or reside within their ICP, within their ideal customer profile, that we're agreed and aligned that we're going after. Now, within the B2B space, you should be able to do that. If you don't have a clearly defined ICP, you can't embark on an ABM program. Or we actually call it ABX now. We don't. I don't like the term account-based marketing. And the reason for that is that ABX account based experience requires absolute alignment between all facets of the organization, sales, mm. marketing and customer experience teams, mm. if you have that. Right. Where you then get to, and this is going to come down to sort of deal sizes and, and the type of business you are, is whether we're running a one to one ABM player, or one to fewer, or one to many. And so if I give you an example of that. If I was working in a category where I was looking to convert defense, so within government, the process of doing that and converting defense, if I'm in the tech space, is a significant play, right? This is a two to three year play. Defense becomes my market. So, so my audience is people that work within within that business or within the buying group within that business. And I'm going to build and deploy a strategy that is specific to that business and to within the, to the buying party that exists in that one we work with some clients where they're one-to-one focus. focused. There, there may be five, there may be 10 accounts that they're looking to yeah. uh, over a period of time. You then may take that up to a one-to-few where we say, okay, we have a cluster of accounts that are in the same sector, as an example, where we're going to build out experiences specifically for them. And so I've got maybe within a one-to-few space, I've, I'm providing communications out that are personalized down to that cluster of maybe 10, 20, 30 organizations And then outside of that, that sort of more one-to-many play where very much I'm focusing on all of those within the ICP, but all of those that were within the ICP specifically that are showing intent for me because I'm focusing on the intent because I need to be able to drive the revenue through for the organization. But outside of that, I may have a brand play that's running on top of that across my ICP as well. But the most important part here from an ABM perspective, and this is where we see the biggest difficulties that organizations have within the ABM is that it's marketing-led and it's not
0: organizational-led. I love the ABX acronym. Is that a, is that a Green Hat thing or is that a kind of industry? It's actually
1: not. I I mean, yeah. Let's put a TM after it and say, yeah, powered by Green Hat. But no, it's not. <laughs> well, we'll cut this out of the
0: pod. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. is, is that a Green Hat thing? Yes, it is. <laughs>
1: um, no, it's not. And we're seeing, look, if you go on and jump onto Google, there there, there are all sorts of extensions of that acronym. Could, could yeah, um, to
0: by the um, um, by the keyword ABX.
1: Yeah, and um, <laughs> I think ABE is the other one I saw it the other day. Account based everything. Yeah. Now, it's interesting, though, because when you distill it back, everything we do from a B2B perspective should be account-based, right? Because you're not, again, you're not dealing necessarily with an individual. You are dealing, yes, there are individuals there that we need to influence, yeah. but I'm dealing, doesn't matter, SME, mid-size enterprise, and it, it's a business that I'm uh, that yeah. I'm communicating to. Um, so.
0: I guess, what are you seeing in, from a digital media perspective in 2023? Like If we kind of talk about the last five years and probably there is mm-hmm. this movement towards the 95-5 rule and mm-hmm. probably... a better understanding of the science behind investing in brand versus kind of performance activities. How are you seeing, you know, paid LinkedIn display advertising, Google ads, is that changed much from what Uh, side of the fence?
1: I think the biggest thing for us there again, is the ingestion of, of things like intent data to be able to power that and to ensure that we're delivering a more personalized experience in order of a better way of sort of describing that. Ingestion of the intent data essentially allows me to be able to say where is this person in terms of their buying decision. Therefore, what are the messages that I want to serve to them? So is it top of funnel, middle of funnel, bottom of funnel? So I think we're getting much more sophisticated around that because of the because of the tech. So the mix may not be changing dramatically. But what we're doing within that is we are seeing we're actually getting a lot more success from this in terms of moving outside of what I would call traditional sort of B2B environments. We use a lot of meta for our clients and we use it very, very successfully as well now. They're able to reach audiences at scale for us. You know, you get into this debate, but that's personal me, not business me. The pandemic has blurred all of those Mm. things. You know, I'm sitting here at home today working, I'm consuming business media in my house i'm consuming consumer media while i'm at work right and so i think those two things have become so blurred anyway i don't think there's any issue with me as a managing director of an agency receiving communications that are relevant to me whilst i'm in a facebook environment am i less responsive there yeah. No, we've I'm never
0: not. had a problem with that like I, I think we you and i agree wholeheartedly on the differences between b2b and b2c but mm-hmm. when it comes to targeting individuals yeah. it's b2h right and i think yeah. Sometimes we struggle to effectively target for certain clients in B2B and meta, but then in other times we can do it really easily and really well. Right. And it, you know, first part using first party data, remarketing, retargeting absolutely. audiences. Yeah, we had a really successful campaign in B2B, which was eighty percent meta. Yeah, in, yeah. in in fairness, it wasn't a complex B2B purchase. We're targeting mm-hmm. kind of smaller business owners. But yeah, I think it's more about your targeting there than the actual platform itself. Oh, where, absolutely
1: yeah. it is. And that's where and again, TikTok comes into play here as well. For the right B2B brands, is that uh, an effective environment? In fact, I know it is because we use this for clients as well and where I'm able to reach an audience and a lookalike audience within there using our first sort of mm. first party data to be able to power that. At the end of the day, our job is to ensure that we are connecting our clients with their end consumers within the buying party and where that is happening. Yes, there is a contextual relevance piece that we need to, we need to be very conscious of and yeah. that comes into play. But first and foremost, I want to ensure that we're putting the brand in front of the the audience in the
0: right way. That's right. Last, last theme, I guess I wanted to dig into, is we touched on it a little bit, but content, like what's happening, what are you seeing with content? Like we talked a little bit about gating and ungating. You've yep. talked a little bit about webinars and probably just yep. resetting expectation as to what data from webinars is, but, your best performing clients, the ones that are smashing yep. it, doing great work. What's the approach to content? How's content strategy and changed over yeah. the last couple of years?
1: Within the B2B space, content is king, right? The big difference and the big change, I would say, is that there is a role for your white papers and your ebooks and that's sort of longer form content. What we are seeing is, I think, push and provocation from the agency, but also from a lot of the CMOs to turn what was historically really dry content into something that is much, much more engaging. Yeah. A lot of that long-form content that existed in the past was so dense and so technical and ultimately, I think, impenetrable at mm. times as well. So there is a genuine, I think, recognition and reflection there within within the B2B space that we need to treat that in, in a very different way to make it so much more engaging. I think turning it into snackable content as well. All of the marketing science, again, will we'll talk to this sort of reduction in time that we're sort of focusing and attentive. So... This sort of desire as well and, and this drive and need to serve that content up in a much more snackable mm. and consumable fashion in more interesting ways to do it. I mean, we're sitting here on a podcast now converting that content into something that can be consumed by me in an audio fashion, as an example, yeah. as its appeal, where I don't necessarily want to sit here and read 10, 10 pages. But I'll certainly consume that if I think it's interesting. On my one, well, we're gonna, in and we're out gonna chop office, this up and right? put so it onto
0: TikTok. We're gonna go viral, you <laughs> yeah. know, with the, uh, the, the B2B in 2023 uh, in little bits of I could, uh, TikTok. I,
1: I, I'm trying to sort of work out the reaction from my kids if they ever stumbled across dad on TikTok. Um, <laughs> I, think it'd I, I think they'd be horrified. I think they'd be horrified.
0: The, uh, I had um, Lindsay and Tristan from Cello on a little while back on the pod, and, and Lindsay mentioned uh, Wonderman Thompson who do an excellent kind of EDM. That content is available on the site, and it is so snackable, and it's so easy to absorb. And it's just snippets of the key findings, and they send stuff out in such a lovely ma- manner, and mm. just goes to show that you know EDMs don't have to be dense, and reports don't have to be dense. And agree, yeah,
1: agree, and ultimately. If what that then does is inspire me to go and find out more, then it's done a really good job for me. And so I think that's the other important part, There, there is a need at some stage within, and it's very much at the bottom of the funnel, to provide all of the rational technical information and the spec sheets and that dense, heavy information, because ultimately... Someone's going to have to sign off on this and ensure that they've done the due diligence. I think the difference is that 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 sort of recognition now that that has no role yeah. at the top and, and and largely in the middle of the funnel as well, right? Yeah, um,
0: it's really interesting observation, mm-hmm. mate. It's been an awesome chat. Last last question: What career advice would you give to an in-house marketer? <laughs>
1: what career advice would best, I give? Best to piece an
0: of career advice?
1: advice: As marketers, the one thing that we always have to be is inquisitive. Like you need to have an inquisitive mind. So expose yourself to as much as you can. Read, read the marketing science. Like we should have a review on that and, and its application within our businesses. Read the marketing press. Ensure that you are across the new trends out, but also that you have an opinion. And then I would say, Get out of your business and just go and hang out with real people as well. Because I think sometimes, sometimes as as, as marketers, and I know I did this to an extent when I was at BMW, you lose sight at times of what's going on out in the real world. So it's really important to get out there and look at what's going on more broadly, culturally, mm. than just within your space and your organisations, you know, go on your nice luxury holidays, but make sure you go to the Royal Show as well. Mm. Get out to the regional and rural areas of Australia Someone said to me they were talking last month at a function and they said whenever they bought the AFR, they'd buy a tabloid as well. Mm. And they'd consume both of them because they were both as important to understand what's really sort of going on out there in the marketplace.
0: Yeah. It's so true. There was a um it was an infographic and it was I don't know, it might have been ten years ago or so. It's produced pretty sure it was produced by an agency. This was when North Bondi Italian was kind of the restaurant mm-hmm. in Sydney mm-hmm. at, at Bondi. And basically it surveyed marketers agency people, and it was kind of in the last six months. How many of you have been to North Bondi Italian? eighty-seven yeah. percent. Like and yeah. that was kind of in the last month. How many have you been to North Bondi? Fifty-three percent. And then the same survey was in the last year. How many of you have been to Parramatta? And you know, thirty-four yeah. percent. How many of you have ever, ever been to Parramatta? And it's fifty percent. And like literally, more mm-hmm. people have been to North Bondi Italian in the last month than had ever been yeah. to Parramatta. And Parramatta is not exactly very far from from Sydney. And so you know, the idea of really understanding, you know, regional Australia or rural Australia. Yeah. And the, 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 it's
1: perspective, the... right? Perspective is so important yeah. here. And, uh, So I think, yeah, an inquisitive and a genuinely open mind here Mm. is so important in in, in terms of what we do.
0: Good one, mate. Thanks so much for your time. It's been great having you on the pod. Yeah,
1: that was cool. I really enjoyed the chat, James. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to the Smarter Marketer podcast. Stay up to date about new episodes on LinkedIn and Instagram by searching for Smarter Marketer podcast. You can purchase your own copy of Smarter Marketer via the Amazon website. And if you want a second opinion about your business's approach to digital marketing, send me an email. James L at rocketagency.com.au or visit the rocketagency.com.au website. Thanks for your time.